and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Two years ago, our guest, Dee Dee Cummings, decided she wanted to introduce a book festival to the city of Louisville, an event found in many other large cities but missing here. She and her team spent those two years planning and scheduling a wonderful event all about books and reading, only to have 2020 happen, a terrible, no good, very bad year that has served as a wet blanket for most kinds of fun. Dee Dee was, of course, disappointed, but she was not deterred. The first annual Louisville Book Festival will take place October 23rd and 24th, virtually, including a session with headliner Tomi Adeyemi, the New York Times best-selling writer of the young adult fantasy novel Children of Blood and Bone. Cummings Book Festival has a unique mission statement. Literacy is a basic human right. She has worked to build an event that will bring both a reading culture and connection to the city, as well as inspire children to dream. When you talk to Dee Dee, you realize that most of her adult life has been spent building up to something big. She's been a social worker and lawyer and is currently a therapist, an author of children's books, and the CEO of Makeaway Media, a company that promotes reading in all kinds of unique ways. Dee Dee tells us why a lack of books that feature brown faces or stories was the inspiration for the Louisville Book Festival, how a book festival can be a life-changing event, and what themes unite all the children's books she's written. Amy and I are recording on a Saturday in September, but we're already thinking ahead to fall and thinking about what that is going to involve in terms of reading. So our guest today is somebody who's got a little project going on that we are super excited about. Her name is Dee Dee Cummings, and she is the CEO of Makeaway Media, as well as the creator of the Louisville Book Festival, which is going to be happening in October. So Dee Dee, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We have heard about you for quite a while because you announced last year about the Louisville Book Festival, and we've all been anxiously awaiting it. Tell us first just a little bit about yourself. I live here in Louisville, Kentucky. I was born in Wichita, Kansas, but I was raised here. I am a local author, a lawyer, a therapist, a mom, and I also founded Makeaway Media, which is a local publishing company here in Louisville as well. You sound like you are super, super busy. I know that you're a huge book reader and a huge book promoter. So tell us a little bit about what your reading life was like when you were a kid. What kind of books did you gravitate to? Or maybe were you a big reader? I was a big reader when I was a kid. And I was thinking about this just a few weeks ago, you know, until the pandemic hit. Kids today get to go to the movies, and even at a very young age, they have cell phones. They have access to all kinds of video games, and we just didn't have a lot of that. So if the sun set at 5.30, you were done playing outside, and there were no video games, and there wasn't a lot of TV either. So books were just something I naturally gravitated to, and I inherited a lot of books from my parents, like the Nancy Drew collection. I had, I think, 
probably the entire Nancy Drew collection because of my mom. And I mean like the real Nancy Drew books, not the ones that are coming out today, which are great too. And I also had a lot of Encyclopedia Brown books. We must be kindred spirits because those were the two series that I read as well. Nancy Drew and Encyclopedia (laughs) Brown. I hear a lot of women talk about reading Nancy Drew, but you don't hear about Encyclopedia Brown very much. Yeah, I love those books. I I think I must have gravitated towards mystery books, but, you know, I didn't really realize it until I became an adult and I saw the commonality between the books I read as a kid. So what type of books now do you tend to find yourself being drawn to? Now I read all kinds of books. Gosh, I was just looking at this stack of books by my bed just the other day because I want to read them all and I just don't have the time to read them all. But I have a kid's book called Blackout, which is about how cool it is when the power goes out and everybody like gives up their electronics and goes outside and enjoys the beauty of the night. That's a a children's book with pictures in it. I have books about anti-racism, you know, which is extremely popular right now. And I want to read those too, because even though I feel like I am anti-racist and know the right things to say, I still want to educate myself about that subject. So I have a stack of those too. I have all kinds of books. I even have older books. I have Toni Morrison's uh, The Bluest Eye and Fahrenheit 451, which I've already read both of those, but I pulled them back out to read them again. So I have a very eclectic selection of books I like to read. You have done a lot professionally. You've gone to law school. You've been a therapist. You're the CEO of Makeaway Media. Tell us about the trajectory of your career and how you fit being an author in there too. Well, it was a long winding road. I never knew really exactly what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to help people. And so I majored in psychology. And then when I came home from college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And my mom wanted me to get a job that had a pension. That was very important to her. It's like how people always say there's work at the post office. So I started working for the state as a child protective service worker, which I never planned to do, even though that was a horrible job and the worst thing I've ever done in my entire life. I don't regret a minute of it because it made me a much more humble person. I'm much more aware of how people find themselves in situations. I'm extremely less judgmental than I was as a young adult thinking that I had things all figured out. And then as a child protective service worker, I went to court a lot and I saw the injustice in the court system. So I became very interested in the legal world. And back then, Louis D. Brandeis School of Law at University of Louisville had a night program, which is very unfortunate that they did away with it because me and probably hundreds of people like me, would have never had the chance to study law if we weren't able to go to school at night. I mean, there's just not a lot of adults that can quit their day job and go to law school. It wouldn't have been possible for me at all. So I went to law school at night. And by the time I got done with law school, I wanted nothing to do with court. I hated it. It was such a combative environment. So because I got burned out on court, I tried to figure out how I could still help people but not be in as combative a role. And I learned that with a master's degree I had previously picked up because the state encouraged us to get master's degrees, which was a great thing, that I could qualify to be a therapist. So that's how I ended up becoming a therapist. It was more important to me to work from the outside to try to help mend a situation than blow it up from 
the inside, which I know going to court is sometimes necessary, but I just didn't prefer to do that. So obviously that was a lot of trauma, right? So when I was working with kids, I started helping them write their stories because it was very empowering. And then, you know, I carried a lot of that trauma too. Not that I lived their life. My experiences are nothing compared to their real life experiences, but I learned that writing also helped me. And so that's how I started writing books. So you see why I took such a deep breath when you asked me (laughs) (laughs) the trajectory of my career. I love the way one thing leads into another though. Yeah, yeah, because when I was 30, I thought my whole life had been a waste. Like I'd wasted these years in child protection. And, And I see now in my 40s that everything came together exactly the way it should have. So where does Makeaway Media fit into that? When I started writing my own books, I noticed that there weren't a lot of books with children of color and and more specifically black children in lead roles. And I had some trouble getting the kids I work with in therapy to be interested. Sometimes when there's a lull in therapy, you can ask kids to go get like a family photo album or a book. And you can talk about that instead of continuing to drill the child with how do they feel and why did they do that. And so to get at their thought process a different way, you can talk about family pictures or you can get a book and you can read it with them and you can pick up on their thinking patterns from reading the book. So the first thing was I was really surprised by the number of kids that didn't have a single book that they could get to talk with me about in therapy. And so I started bringing my own books with me and just giving the kids the books. That's really how Makeaway Media was founded. And then I noticed that when books had stories that were more closely related to these poor kids I was serving, or if they had characters that looked like them, they were much more likely to be interested in the book and and, and super engaged in the book. And so I developed Makeaway Media as a way to publish books that have stories that reflect the lives of the kids that I was serving, number one. And then number two, we founded It Pays to Read, which is the charitable arm of Makeaway Media because I was giving away so many books. It it just made sense to turn it into an actual nonprofit because I couldn't get enough books to give to people. Mm -hmm. So we formed a nonprofit with the hopes that that mission would spread across our entire city. And it's actually spread across the country now. So tell us some more about the It Pays to Read program. I started It Pays to Read because I have a therapy company called Abbey Behavioral Health. And we had a lot of teenage kids who just weren't, I mean, there's only so much talking you can do to kids. You know that as a parent, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to take it a level above talking. And so as a bunch of therapists, we noticed that these kids were missing crucial practical skills and crucial connections and lacking empathy in a whole lot of ways and just not able to goal plan or see a future. And we can't take them on trips to New York or Los Angeles. You know, we just don't have that kind of money, but we can take them on all kinds of trips through books. And we have close to 20 kids in the program regularly. We've had more than 20 in the program, but we have close to 20 regular attendees. And 100% of the kids who attend the It Pays to Read program said that they never knew that reading could be enjoyable. 
all of the reading they'd done in their entire lives had been forced on them. So the very first book we read was Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give. And again, you've got a character who looks like them, a character who sounds like them with experiences that reflect theirs. And it showed them a whole different way of thinking about violence and standing up for what's right in your community in a way that therapists weren't able to reach them through talking. One of the crucial elements of the It Pays to Read program is that we literally pay kids to read. So every once in a while you'll hear some grumbling about you shouldn't pay kids to do what they're supposed to do anyway. Well, number one, they weren't doing it. And number two, how many of us show up for stuff we don't get paid for? Mm-hmm. So if giving kids a very few dollars a week encourages them to read, then it's worth it. Because what they'll get from those books is so much bigger than that little amount that they're paid. Yeah, it's reaching them in a way that therapy cannot. It's a little different. It looks a little different, but ultimately it's the same thing. Some parents, if their kids get certain grades on their report cards, they pay them for their grades. Well, that's kind of the same thing. It's still a carrot to encourage somebody to do something. It's about intrinsic, right? So that's people's real issue with it is, They think kids should be intrinsically motivated. Well, we're dealing with kids that have no intrinsic motivation. They have no reason to. They just don't see intrinsic motivation work out. So what our hope is and what we've seen is if you pay them and give them external motivation, then the intrinsic motivation comes because they then get it. They were motivated externally and then they get the bigger picture. And I have kids... They'd never read a book that wasn't assigned by a teacher texting me pictures on spring break of them going to the library, which they've never done on their own, and texting me a picture of the book they picked up Mm -hmm. that they can't wait to read. So that intrinsic motivation paid off in every case with every child in that program. And that must give you the tingles all over. It really, really does because there's a voice in our country that says that it's not cool to read and that you're a nerd if you read and not in a good way, not in the book nerd way that we proudly proclaim. (laughs) And so these kids buy into that theory sometimes that it's not cool to raise your hand in class and speak up or to do the extra credit, or I don't really even understand the whole logic, but you've heard it and you know it's there. Right. We've combated a lot of that too. So you've published 10 books and you've got a new one coming out in October. So Tell us about the the newest one that's coming out and why you're excited about it. Well, I actually published 11 books. The one that's coming out in October is a rebrand of one of those books. You know, when you write your first few books and you're not working with these big publishing companies and editors and professional illustrators and all that, you're doing it all on your own. And so I look back at some of these books and I see things that if I could do them over again, I would. So I won't redo all of my books, but this one is especially important to me because it's inspired by the life of my daughter, Kayla, and it's about her journey becoming a Black musical theater actress from a young age. It is inspired by her. It's not her true story, Mm -hmm. but I'm redoing that book because I got some feedback that for a picture book, it was pretty long and it could be broken in a few sections which was something I really didn't know. I mean, I would read a book with 100 pages with pictures in it if I could. (laughs) (laughs) But I get why a three-year-old might not want to do that. (laughs) 
And what's the title of, of the book that's getting the rebrand? Kayla, A Modern Day Princess. And then you had one out last year that I, I know got quite a bit of press in the nick of time, which is a holiday oh, themed book, right? Yeah, I got a lot of press. One of the classic storylines that I love is when a kid gets to help Santa Claus save the day. And there wasn't a storyline about a black boy who got to help Santa Claus. And how I realized that was my family loves Christmas. We love everything about Christmas. And I mean, we go all out. We have more than one Christmas tree. We have a lot of family over for Christmas. We cook a lot. We make cookies. We do all the stuff you're supposed to do for Santa, leave the cookies and the milk out, all that. And we also read books to our kids with holiday themes. And we buy Christmas books with all kinds of characters. But one holiday season, I realized we had all the books there were that were about Christmas with black characters. There were no more. And it's like endless, the Christmas books you can buy, right? Right. But not if you're looking for Christmas books with black characters. There is an end. So I just love that storyline about a kid getting to help Santa Claus save the day. So that all unfolded too. I didn't plan for the story to come out the way that it did. As I was writing it, it just became clear what the message was. But it's getting a lot of praise, one, because it has a black character, but Two, because of the message, it talks about poverty and privilege in a way that kids really need to hear more about. Do you think that your books have any common themes amongst them? Clearly, uh, without question, a common theme in my books is compassion, hope, and diverse characters. So let's add on another thing to this, which is the Louisville Book Festival. So how did that idea develop? Well, through my work with Makeaway Media, I just started meeting all these people, all of these authors, publishers, people who are in the literary field, you know, even guys like you. There's such a huge community of people who love books. So they may not even be authors, but they might be podcasters who love books, which is just as important because you're giving me a platform today to spread this message. Many people are still surprised when I tell them that a Black child will have an easier time finding a book to read with an animal as the protagonist than someone who looks like them. I just find that astounding. Don't get me wrong, I love Clifford the Big Red Dog, and I love Curious George. I could go on, right, with all the animal books that are out there, but I don't understand why it's so hard to get children's books with, you know, Native Americans or Latinos or Black children published. And so I just developed this community of people that I began to talk to about all these issues. And I thought, wouldn't that be really cool to bring them all to Louisville? <laughs> like one big party. <laughs> so that's how the Louisville Book Festival came to fruition, because I wanted to get all of these people together and talk about these things in person. Part of the mission statement that you have for the Louisville Book Festival that I saw on your website is that literacy is a fundamental human right and that there is power and purpose in bringing books to life every day of the year. And I have been to many book festivals and I've never seen a mission statement like that. So I'm wondering why it's important to you, to our state, to our city and in the country right now to have the book festival and how do you want the festival to be similar or different? from those in, in other places. Kentucky has a Kentucky Book Festival and there's there's nothing wrong with that book festival. It's, it serves the purpose. There's the Women's Book Festival also that's held every year at the University of Louisville, which is a great empowering 
book festival. There is something done by Louisville Literary Arts, which is uh, more of a writing conference, but they also have the opportunity for the public to come and meet authors there as well. So we have events similar to this, you know, well within our reach, but we haven't had a citywide Louisville Book Festival. And if, if you look at most major cities, have a book festival, Boston Book Festival, Miami Book Festival, uh, San Antonio Book Festival. These are huge book festivals and gigantic cultural events. Louisville can use more culture, number one. Number two, Louisville can use more connections, and probably all of us can across the country because of the political climate, but also, you know, now, who could have predicted this pandemic? So I really can't wait until the pandemic is over and we do get to hold this book festival in person because book festivals are all about people connecting. And I can't think of anything cooler than if you're a real book nerd like we are. Yes. <laughs> you know, and you, you read these books, you almost can eat them up. I mean, you just love them so much. You talk to everybody about them and you lose sleep because you're tired and you want to go to bed, but you just got to finish this last chapter. I mean, can you think of anything cooler than having the opportunity to maybe one day meet that author in person and hear them talk about on a deeper, richer level, all the stuff they couldn't fit in the book. Things I love the most about books is when I read about these complex concepts that I've never thought of before. And I would just love to see some of these authors from these books that I've read talk about that book in person, talk about that character in person, talk about that concept in person, and then just the opportunity to, if you're lucky enough to maybe even meet them and shake their hand. That's just total like fan moment. But if you don't have a book festival, you don't have as many opportunities for those kind of experiences. And I think for kids in our city, we talk a lot about some of the children in our city, especially the at-risk children in our city that don't have the opportunities to touch people who help them dream. And a book festival can do that. A book festival can, who knows, the lives that we might be able to touch and inspire just because some of these children in our city hear some of these local and national authors speak about their dreams and their vision. I'm not trying to be silly, but like literally I get goosebumps when I talk about it because I just can see the vision for what a big deal this could be for Louisville. Oh, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I've been to several book festivals. I've been to Texas Book Festival, which is a huge one. And I've been to the Southern mm -hmm. Festival of the Book. There's one up in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And even just being a book festival, I get giddy when I go. Before yeah. I had been to one, I, I mean, I thought it seemed like a cool idea. And I'm a book lover, but I guess I just didn't understand how life-changing might be a bit of an overstatement. But for someone who loves books, it is kind of life-changing to go and listen to these authors who you have admired, talk about their books, what was behind their books, and to realize that they're just normal people as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great thing. Well, and I don't think life-changing is an overstatement. I think it can be life-changing because I've seen just what reading books in our It Pays to Read program does for the children who are in our program. Just reading books can be life-changing. So for me, I, I realized that as I talked about the Louisville Book Festival in the beginning, everybody thought it was a child's book festival because I talked about children and their role in the festival so much. I didn't even realize how much I was talking about. It's comprehensive. It's for ages zero to 100 and whatever. But I talked about children so much because I had such a strong desire to inspire children who can't really see 
that the world is so much bigger than Louisville and that their ideas are important and that people will want to hear about them and that they should write them down. They should write their story. They should tell their story. Their story is important. And so that's where we developed the mission to emphasize that literacy is a fundamental human right. You had the idea for a book festival and you were talking to people. The timeline hasn't changed, but the plan has changed because of COVID. So at what point did you start putting, I guess, ideas in action and how has that changed? You know, we're not alone in going virtual this year. The option was to go virtual or to cancel it, but there Mm -hmm. was no option to hold it in person. We just can't do that. Right. We have this beautiful St. James Art Fair and St. James Art Festival canceled this year which they've been around like a hundred years and they've never canceled before. Not rain or anything has has canceled the St. James Art Fair. And if you even go to something like that, an art fair, you see how cool it is to have these community connections, you know, Mm -hmm. to run into people who go every year and run into artists who come every year and hear their story and connect with people in person. And because I just cannot wait until this pandemic is over and we can all come together. If there's anybody who's listening to this podcast and doesn't understand how a book festival can be cool, because actually people have asked me that, you just need to come to it and then you'll get it. And you don't even have to be a book lover or a book nerd to come to the book festival. There will be something for everyone. There'll be, when we return to the live format, there'll be cooking demonstrations from people who've written cookbooks. There'll be how-to demonstrations from people who've written how-to books. There'll be people who've written romance novels. If you're a romance junkie, you love romance novels, and you'll be able to meet those people and maybe inspire you to write your own romance novels. I mean, there's just going to be so much activity and so many things for you to be able to choose from that you'll get why a book festival was important for us to have. I know you can't have it in person, obviously. Mm -hmm. So what's it going to look like virtually? How is that going to work? It's going to be greatly scaled down, obviously, from what we wanted. But like I said, the choices were to either cancel it outright or to go virtual. And so because it is our first year, we just wanted to introduce people to the concept of what's possible. So we'll have a a bunch of virtual rooms where we'll have an author schedule and we hope that you will attend all of the virtual rooms with authors that you love or that you're interested in. And we hope that you'll attend even more rooms of authors you've never heard of because that's another cool thing about being at a book festival is that you get to meet people that you never even thought you would meet and learn about things and become interested in things that, you know, you'd never heard of until you met them through this book festival. So it will be online. And I know a lot of people are tired of being on Zoom and, but you'll be able to hear about really cool subjects. And again, I think people think book festivals are just about books, but think about all the concepts that books cover. So we have this really cool guy who's written this book about Tom Petty and Rake. Hmm. Would you have ever even thought that that was even a topic? Yeah. (laughs) It's just such a cool concept to think about things that you will be able to learn about that you didn't even know existed. So this year we could have the cooking demos online, but I don't think we're going to do that this year. We're just going to give readers an opportunity to meet some of their favorite authors and to meet some new authors. And we'll have opportunities for kids to talk with authors, well, adults too, about how they became an author and what that journey was like. And we hope to 
inspire a lot of people. And we hope that people aren't too burned out on virtual work events. This is something different that we hope that they'll find new and exciting and refreshing. You know, in some ways, I have enjoyed the opportunity because of COVID to actually be able to attend some lectures and some book readings from authors that I know. I'll see them on Uh Facebook and it may not even be my local bookstore. I mean, I think I attended a author talk that was through a bookstore in Asheville, North Carolina the other day, because at this Uh point it doesn't matter where you are, right? Like you can log in anywhere. And I've been able to attend those and it's been kind of fun because it's not something that I would have normally done. Or also I attended a lecture by an author who was talking about something I was very interested in through the Filson Historical Society. Well, I never would have gone down to the Filson Historical Society, probably to have heard this lecture, Mm. but I can do it from in the privacy of my little office, eat my dinner while I'm watching it. And so I will be totally happy to be go, go back to doing things in person, but does offer some opportunities that you may not have had before. Right. And I guess that's what I was saying, too. You know, I don't want you to be burned out on your work activities, but this is so unlike that. You have people doing these virtual concerts and things like that. So you're right. These are things we would have not gotten to see had people not been trying to do different and unusual things virtually. So, Didi, I have to ask, because I know at one point you had posted about Tomi Adeyemi. Yes. Uh, How could I should have brought her up first. I saw that post. So she is the author of Children of Blood and Bone. And that book had been on my list. But when Mm -hmm. I saw your post, I was like, okay, I got to get it done. I got to read it. So is that still happening? virtually? Yeah, it is still happening. She is still appearing virtually, but we have room for 500 people to attend her event and have that kind of close connection to her, which is cool. But I think of all the things that have been hard to let go of, that's probably been the hardest, not having her in person to meet our It Pays to Read group of kids. Still a great thing that she's appearing virtually, but probably has been my biggest heartbreak Gosh, I really wanted them to meet her, and that's hard for me to let go. And maybe if we're fortunate enough to get her back again, even though book festivals don't tend to recycle authors like that, I would love to have her back again. She's really young. She would have been so inspirational for the kids that I serve, and I just wanted them to meet somebody like her, somebody who not only is not from their world, but then created these really cool worlds that don't even exist. I just wanted them to be exposed to that kind of thought process in person. But we're really excited that Tommy still wants to be a part of this. And we've explained to her too what we do with It Pays to Read and all of that. And she loves it. So we're very excited that she's going to be a part of this inaugural festival because she's a very inspiring author to hear from. One of the things that I think is so cool is that even though they came about separately at different times, all of the different parts of what you do meld together. So it seems like the Louisville Book Festival, the mission of it really ties in with what you're doing with Makeaway Media and what you're doing with your It Pays to Read program. And even the books that you write are tied into that. And I just think that that's that's really cool. And I've never seen a book festival that has such a clear idea of what it wants to be in a mission statement. Thank you. I totally agree that, number one, it's neat how it all came together. And I didn't have this master plan. It just all kept unfolding. 
And number two, I really agree that it is the mission statement is cool. It's really packed with purpose and everything I've done has been packed with purpose. So when is the Louisville Book Festival? What are the dates? October 23rd, which is a Friday, and October 24th, which is a Saturday, from 10 to 6, Tommy Adiemi will be on sometime on Friday. But just watch the Louisville Book Festival website for the schedule. She'll be on early Friday, and we'll send out lots of information about how you can sign up to make sure that you're one of those 500 people who get to hear from her directly. So if listeners want to learn more about Louisville Book Festival, where should they go in terms of learning more about you, what you've written, and the Louisville Book Festival? If you're interested in the Louisville Book Festival, the Louisville Book Festival has a website. It's very easy to remember because it's just louisvillebookfestival.com. And we got all the social media handles, Louisville Book Festival. So we're easy to find on Google and we're easy to find on social media because it's all just Louisville Book Festival. And then if you want to find more about what I do, I would be very honored by that. And I have two websites, one that's makeawaymedia.com and the other is ddcummings.com. And Diddy Cummings is a personal website for me, but it largely feeds into Makeaway Media. So you can go on DeeDeeCummings.com or Makeaway Media and find information about my books on either site. Awesome. Well, we are totally excited about the Louisville Book Festival. We hope at some point it gets to be in person, but I'm still jazzed about it virtually. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about what we're reading. We are back with Dee Dee Cummings and with Carrie. And Carrie, I want to know what you're reading. So, Amy, you had talked about a book by an author named Henry Clark. And I think that one was like something we found in the couch cushions or, you know, yes. how it saved yes. the day. Yeah. So thank goodness for the Louisville Free Public Library. And once they started doing curbside, I was able to get another book. So it, it's kind of like this is a series of books. Right now, there's only two. There's three. There's a third there are three? Okay. Mm-hmm. I was very happy to find that it appears to be a series in that they're thematically similar. They kind of have the same setup, but the characters are different. At least between like book one and two, which are the only two that I have any idea about or reference point for, the characters are different. So it's not like you have to read the first one in order to understand the second one. And that's, for me, sometimes I just can't commit to series. I just get tired of a series. So the book I read by Henry Clark is What We Found in the Corn Maze and How It Saved a Dragon. This book, it has three main characters, does that usual thing where you have one girl and two boys. In this, it's Cal, Drew, and Modesty. And the story begins where Drew and Cal discover a girl, Modesty, and she has been able to work a spell where money rolls to her. So all these lost coins that are just on the street, they will roll to her. And so that begins this tale of how these kids end up discovering a sort of a parallel world that is right next to theirs. And a librarian apprentice comes through Modesty's refrigerator. He pops out of Modesty's refrigerator and he's like, all the magic is disappearing from my world and this dragon is going to be lost and I I need your help. And so... 
Cal, Modesty, and Drew end up going with him back into the parallel world. And what happens is it's all about they're trying to figure out why magic is disappearing from the librarian assistance world and why it's going into Cal, Modesty, and Drew's world. Okay, so the story goes along. One of the things, though, that I thought was really funny and I wanted to share with you all. So let me get this yeah. right. The, the refrigerator yeah. is sort of like a portal. Yes. Yes. Okay. The refrigerator is a portal. Yes. So when Cal, Modesty, and Drew go into the parallel world, pop through the refrigerator into this magical world where the magic is disappearing, they kind of go to this, it's like a tower that also serves as a library. And what they notice is that there's tons and tons of books all about libraries. So one of the characters starts reading the titles and he says, he leans closer and starts reading off titles. The mystery of the old library, the librarians take a holiday, all's well where there's a library, Franklin Gothic, ghost hunter librarian. And he's like, what is this? And he says, that's the li-fi section. Li-fi? Librarian fiction. A few years ago, one of our authors realized that any book that has a librarian as a main character is much more likely to get recommended by real librarians. Ever since Cooper Black, Pirate Librarian became a big hit, other authors have been bringing out books about librarians who are also detectives or spies or super wizards or costume crime fighters or stunt unicyclists. I love this book. I I took a picture of that because I just thought it was hilarious that there was a li-fi section. Maybe I should recommend this book to my mom because she told me that she needed more books and she didn't want anything heavy. So this would definitely fit the bill. So if you have a a child or if you just love fun little quick reads about adventures that are totally light and endearing, this would be a, a good one for you to read. So Now the one that I read was a middle grade. Would you say this is a middle grade? Yeah, although, you know, there's some kids that are in third grade that could, you know, depending on their reading level, they could read this book. So it's like ages 8 to 12? Yeah, yeah. I would say that, 8 to 12, but again, or almost 47-year-old yeah. women who like... Yes, because I love the first one. Yeah, so it was fun. Dee, Dee what have you been reading? I've been reading Stamped by Ibram X. Kendi. Yes. And it is a very heavy read, but I've really been into reading books about culture and race in our society, even though it's hard to read. The topics are just so timely because you just see these comments everywhere, especially if you're on social media. I think I'm searching for ways to just understand it Mm -hmm. better. Like, how did we get to this point? And this book is a very difficult read. But if you really want to understand how the history of prejudice evolved in America and why it is so deeply entrenched, this is a really good book for that. So, Didi, about how long is that? Because I've read the stamp, the the remix. With Jason. Yes. So I've read that one. So because it's geared for kids, middle schoolers, you know, around that age, it was a very fast read for me. So with stamped, is that considerably longer? It's like a textbook. Oh. Probably should be, if not already is being used as a textbook in schools. Mm -hmm. It's that comprehensive. It's more than 500 pages long, I know. Okay. And it's got an extensive footnote section. So all of his work is sourced. So it is very much like a textbook. And some of it will make you sick, honestly, but it is a necessary read if you're interested in how these concepts not only came to be and evolved, but how they became like really 
woven into the fabric of how we think as Americans. And we all have these prejudices. You know, we're all Americans. So we all were raised with a lot of the same misperceptions and stereotypes about race in America. Mm -hmm. So it's not a quick or easy read at all. It, I do think that it's good if you can't read this to read the one that was, to use your term, remixed with Jason Reynolds. It, it is a much easier read. Mm -hmm. I'm working on white fragility right now. When I say I'm working on it, I've been working on it for about a month and I can only read like a chapter at a time. But there's a group of women that I'm involved with. And when we're all done, we're going to meet and, and discuss. But I know what you mean about it. I can only read about a chapter at a time because it's it's heavy and it's just a lot to think about and to process. And yeah. to take in. So, Amy, how about you? What have you been reading? So I'm going to talk about a book today that is a sequel to one that I've talked about before. The One and Only Bob by Catherine Applegate. And this was published just this year. And our beloved bookseller, Sam Miller, told us all about it on our summer reading show back in June. So I read The One and Only Ivan first, and I talked about it on an episode that we did with Ellen Burkett Morris probably a month or so ago. And I absolutely loved that book. It filled my heart up to the tippy tippy top. And I gave it a five-star rating. It's one of the favorite books that I've read this year, in fact. And it is the story of a gorilla named Ivan who is confined to a cage at a roadside attraction, along with an elderly elephant and a baby elephant. And there's also a stray dog named Bob. So after reading Ivan's story, I immediately put myself on the waiting list at the library for the one and only Bob. And the first copy that came in was the audiobook version, and it's narrated by Danny DeVito. And it came in on my birthday and I started listening while I was walking my dogs and I immediately called Carrie after listening for just a few minutes and I said that this was the best birthday gift the library could have possibly given me. <laughs> and I was just ecstatic and giddy with joy listening to it. And in fact, I was laughing and smiling as I'm walking and probably people walking past me thought that I had like had a screw loose or something. But, like I was a crazy lady, a little nuts. <laughs> But this book is Bob's story, the story of a stray dog who is adopted by a girl named Julia, but he has trouble trusting humans because he spent so much of his time as a street dog, having to fend for himself, seeing the rough sides of life instead of life as a dog who's always had a soft bed, regular food, and someone to cuddle with. But he's still your typical dog, and he's still sweet by nature. So in the beginning of the book, there's a canine glossary, and these terms cracked me up. My favorite one is a drool flag, which is a dog's tongue, especially when they have their head sticking out a window. <laughs> Another one is the zoomies, which if you have a dog, you're familiar with this phenomenon, but it's where they start running through the house or the yard at top speed back and forth or around and around for no particular reason. And in fact, we call it zoomies at our house too. Cats then, do that too. Do cats do that too? Cats do that too, yes. There are many more terms, but this was the, another one that just cracked me up. And it's called a tug of war string, which is basically just a leash. But I thought it was just a funny term. So Bob is a chihuahua mixed with something more furry. So imagine him. He's kind of small and scruffy. But though he's small, he makes for it an attitude. And this is how he describes himself. This is a quote. You might think I'm some kind of lap dog, the kind you see poking out of an old lady's purse like a hairy keychain. But size ain't everything. It's swagger, attitude. You gotta have the moves. I'm trying to say that in like a Danny DeVito type of voice. Can you see? <laughs> but um, Bob and his family live in Florida. And this book is the story about a tornado that come through 
Julia takes Bob regularly to go visit his old friends, Ivan and Ruby at the zoo. And while they're there, the tornado comes through and Bob has a harrowing experience as he is separated from his friends and from Julia. And he's trying to get back to his family. And so during this time, he has to deal with other animals, both inside and outside the zoo and along with the destruction and the flooding that are due to the storm. So I would say that one of the underlying themes of the book is climate change and the way we're having more powerful and destructive storms, but we're having lots of strange weather. In fact, I heard on the news the other day that we're going to have more and more hurricanes that are going to be category fours and that that's just going to be the new normal. I wouldn't say that you're hit over the head with the climate change. I mean, it's definitely there. He doesn't talk about it all the time, but here's how Bob explains it in dog terms. The way I understand things, it's like this. We live on a lonely ball we call Earth, and humans have basically been throwing it against the wall for so long that the poor old ball is falling apart. Mm. So the other theme that comes out is friendship and forgiving yourself. So Bob spends a lot of time feeling guilty over things that he had to do when he was a street dog, that he had to do for survival. And now he wants to be brave. But as Ivan tells him, brave is different for different people. Brave for a mouse is different from brave for me or brave for you. I love this book and I highly recommend listening to the audiobook version. Danny DeVito is just absolutely the perfect Bob. And it really adds something, I think. I'm sure reading the book is wonderful as well. I've only had the experience of listening to it. But you can just totally imagine Bob with Danny DeVito's voice. And in my opinion, you don't have to have read the one and only Ivan to appreciate the one and only Bob. It probably helps a little bit, but the author does introduce those characters to us again as Bob's friends at the zoo. And this is definitely Bob's story separate from Ivan. Ivan plays a role, but this book is all about Bob. I would give this book four and a half stars. I didn't like it quite as well as the one and only Ivan, just because I thought the story of the first book was just a tad stronger, but it's a very, very close. I love this one so, so much. And in fact, after I finished listening to it, I didn't want to return it back to the library. So I've started listening to it all over again. And I want to give you one last quote from the book that I think is perfect for dog lovers and for book lovers. Bob says, dogs are the experts at odor, students of stink. We analyze the air the way humans read poetry, searching for invisible truths. Mm. It was just a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. And I would say it's also for ages probably 8 to 12 on up. I mean, anybody who loves dogs, who loves animals, would love this book. But it's probably written for like 8 to 12 to 13-year-olds. It would be the target audience. You were pretty hilarious, that phone call. You were like, Well, I'm a huge, huge dog lover, as most of you know. And so a, a book with a talking dog with Danny DeVito as his voice, there's not, there's almost nothing better. What can I say? Since you have recommended it so highly, I have a number of students who, like Danny DeVito apparently is, I don't know, like it seems like middle schoolers have this thing with Danny DeVito. And the students I know who are fans. You know, I have recommended the book, the audio book to them. Well, these all sound great. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be asking Dee Dee her top five. We are back with Dee Dee Cummings and we're going to ask her her top five. You are a bell collector, so tell our listeners why you collect them, and do you have a top most prized bell? 
I went to a college called Bennett College, which is a small liberal arts college in Greensboro, North Carolina. It's also a historically black college. So that was a unique and very fun experience. I loved it. And I was elected Miss Bennett College, which is like an official student government position. You're like an ambassador for the college. And when I became Miss Bennett, a few people gave me bells because the Bennett College mascot is a Bennett Bell, like the Southern Bell. Mm-hmm. This college was founded in the early 1900s, so it goes way back to that. And my mom graduated from Bennett College, and so did one of my sisters. And so when I became Miss Bennett, I got this really regal, ornate brass bell that is just beautiful. It shines. So I love that one, but I also love another bell. Uh, after I graduated from Bennett, people saw I had these bells. And they started giving me bills. Probably really don't even pay attention to bills unless it's something you're interested in. Uh, when we would go somewhere unique, you hear that? It's yeah. a bell. It's a bell. <laughs> it is. Wow. It's a bell. <laughs> That's crazy. So I love my brass bell. And then I love another one that my husband gave me from a trip to the beach. The bell is shaped like waves of the ocean. And the handle of the bell is a dolphin mm-hmm. leaping out of the oceans. Number two, you went to school for a long time for all your various professional credentials. You told us about, you know, law school and therapy and your master's degree. And you said that part of that was to defer your college debt. So what is the top thing you'd like to see change to make higher education more affordable? That is it, that it's affordable. I mean, you're an American, you want to get more education. And you have to take out a loan the size of a mortgage to do it. It's unreal. And college, not even talking about graduate school and master's level and doctoral level, college is just exorbitant. I have a niece right now who attends DePaul in Chicago, and I think her tuition is close to $70,000 a year. Oh, my gosh. I can't. can't, This is college. Yeah. And then you see a community college, which should have really been a true college experience kind of watered down by the technical system. It took away from the college experience and people who go to college are kind of turned off by it being combined with a technical school because it's, you know, more along the line of vocation as opposed to college. Mm-hmm. So the college that is somewhat affordable is being rebranded and given a bad rap in a way. Mm-hmm. So that would be my number one thing is that college should just be affordable. I don't think people think about what an impact affordable college is going to have on the economy. Like, I don't think people realize that when young people come out of school and they have all this debt, that means that they aren't buying cars and homes and clothing and travel and all of those things that help feed the economy. They can't do as much of it because they're paying off college debt. Sometimes that gets missed. So as a person who's a helper and you've spent many years helping other people, what is the top mistake you've made when it comes to managing the weight of helping other people through trauma? Because as you said, you know, if you walk hand in hand with somebody who's going through traumatic situations, you can't help but be impacted by that. Mm -hmm. So what is the top mistake you've made and what advice would you give to other people? It's funny that you say managing the weight because that is the the top mistake I've made is not managing my weight. And I mean that literally and figuratively. When I was a child protective service worker, I gained so much weight. And I also admittedly kind of neglected my own child because 
I was out trying to be the savior in the field, saving other kids. And thank God she wasn't truly neglected because my mom was alive then and my mother and father and my two sisters who were home at the time gave her all the family she needed, but I should have been there more. And I was working just extreme hours all day and all night long trying to put out these fires all over the city and you can only do what you can do it's impossible to try to be everywhere all the time it's impossible to try to attend to or even anticipate everybody's needs and I really did put myself and my family last during that phase of my career and so when I say managing weight I don't just mean like the weight I gained I mean like Mm self-care like really putting yourself first. And one of my favorite analogies I always tell people now who I try to encourage to put themselves first, moms especially have a hard time with this. Moms that work outside the home have an even harder time with this because they think that they must dedicate themselves to their career. And then anytime they have left, they have to give to their family. And so I always tell anybody that has trouble with self-care, When you get on an airplane, they always tell you if the cabin pressure drops to put the oxygen mask on yourself first. They repeat this every time because it's some people's natural inclination to put the mask on whoever they're with first, especially if they're not as strong as they are, if they're, you know, like an elderly parent or a child that they're traveling with. And the reason they tell you to put the mask on yourself first is because if you waste time trying to put the mask on somebody else, you will pass out before you get to put the mask on them and before you get to put the mask on yourself. And so when you think about it from those terms, that you're not being selfish when you do self-care, you are not able to take care of anyone else if you don't take care of yourself first. And so I do a little bit better of a job of that now, but I wish I'd have started that 20 years ago. So you are a children's book author and you also love to read children's books yourself. And you've said that you wish that many adult novels had pictures. So what is the top (laughs) adult novel you think would benefit from illustrations like your favorite children's books? Well, I do think it'd be cool if some adult novels had pictures, but I do recognize that One reason why people like reading novels is because of the story and the characters that you get to create in your own head. I mean, it's great for your own imagination. I do love that you can hear Danny DeVito's voice clearly because I think he has a very distinct, unique, and hilarious voice. So he's appropriate for that. But in some books, it's cool to come up with your own character voice and your own character images. But I guess I've read Toni Morrison's books, I believe all of them more than one time. And I do have images in my mind of what those characters and those settings look like, but I do think it'd be kind of cool if any of Toni Morrison's books, maybe The Bluest Eye, had some pictures with it, just because her writing is like poetry. And I just like to see really poetic images along with some of those words. Mm -hmm. I'm getting ready to teach their eyes were watching God. And there's so much in there with just the pear tree and some of those things. She's just so good about painting this visual. And I'm not an artistic person (laughs) at all. So it would be nice just to see how somebody who has talent in drawing or painting could make me picture that. I picture it already in my head, but yeah, yeah, there are certain books that have different parts that really lend themselves, I think, to that visual element. And that's what I think when I write these words, you know, I'm a children's book author, so I don't write a whole lot of words, which is not easier, by the way. Obviously, I'm a very verbose person, so paring down words is hard for me. But when I have an illustrator who creates this world, and I don't really 
tell illustrators what to do. I tell them sometimes some of the things I'd like to see, but for the most part, they create these worlds. And I think when they do that with my own words, I just would love to see what some people would do with some of the other words, like their eyes were watching God. I got that book when I was 15 years old from an aunt and she wrote on the inside of it, read this book now and read it later when you're a woman. Mm -hmm. And I remember when she gave it to me at 15 and I read that and I thought, I am a woman, which is <laughs> hilarious to me now, right? <laughs> but that, that also would be a great book to see some imagery with, uh, especially the scenes, you know, where the water comes in. Right. Oh, yeah. I, that would be really kind of neat to see the sheer poetry of the words and the imagery together. Okay. So your last question when getting away from everyday life, some people are mountain people, some people are lake people, and then there are beach people. And you've said that the beach is your happy place. So besides fun in the sun, what's the top reason you like to vacation at the beach? I think the mountains are beautiful and lakes are beautiful. And But if I had a choice to go to the beach every month, that's where I would choose to go. I mean, I love the beach and the real reason I really love to go there is for some reason when I go and I just sit and I watch this tide just come in and go, something so powerful that no one can stop. And it's huge. The beach is usually a giant landscape of a place, right? So like a beach on a lake, you can kind of see an end sometimes, whereas a beach of an ocean will just go on forever. And it's just really hard to bring problems to the beach mm -hmm. and not be able to put them in a perspective that those problems really aren't that big. Even pretty major conflicts I've had in my life with coworkers or with people in court or with families I've disagreed with, or even in my own family, when you take those problems to the beach, it's not that the problems aren't important. They just don't seem so unsurmountable mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you compare them to something just majestic like that is, is what we've been granted on this earth. It's just, there's just no comparison. So it helps me put things in perspective, I think. Well, Dee Dee, it has been so great learning about your career. And we are so very excited to see the Louisville Book Festival virtually, and then hopefully in person next year. So thank you so much. Thank you again for having me. This was a very enjoyable conversation. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.